You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Now we're going to read. Today is Ascension Sunday. It's the day that we talk about what it means that Jesus lifted up off the ground and left and said he'd be back. And we're like, when? And he's like, oh, I can't hear. I'm gone. Like, he's like, it's cutting out. I, and he left. And we're just like, all right. So we'll just, we'll, we'll just be right here waiting for you to get back. So we want to talk about what does it mean that the Bible talks about him ascending. And so here's Luke's version of that story. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is, this is very key to how we read our Bible. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed, not forced, proclaimed in his name to all nations, not some, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I want to point out there that he's not talking about us when he says you are witnesses of these things. He's talking about the 11 that were standing in front of him. And because they went into all the world, we're in church right now. Because they obeyed the Great Commission, we're here. Because we, our existence in this room right now, <laughs> I just watched him fall out of the chair, sorry. <laughs> our existence in the room right now is because they, the men and women who saw Jesus rise from the dead were faithful to their calling. So the question I want to ask myself and all of us is, who's going to be here in 100 years because we were faithful to ours? Just throwing it out there. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We have a tendency to go to a new place before we have the power to be there and wonder why things go wrong. I never think of this stuff until I read it out loud. I should start making my whole family sit down and listen to me read it out loud. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually watching online and blessing God. Nope. Continually at the campground, but nope. They were continually on vacation. They were continually in the temple. I'm sorry, my, my translation was off. They're continually in the temple blessing God. That was my bad. I just, the handwriting uh, from the, I almost said the typewriter. What's happening? <laughs> That's how we do things here. So, what does it mean that Jesus ascended? I just want to read one more text, and then the Bible study will be over. Romans chapter 1 says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Listen. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul just wrote in a few verses in the introduction to the Romans is that 
for Jesus to ascend to heaven is, is, a, is an allusion from the book of Daniel that says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the Father. It means that Jesus has all power. Everybody say all power. He has all power, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. And the power he has on earth is of a heavenly kind. So he didn't take earthly power and bring it to heaven. He took heavenly power and brought it to earth. That distinction is everything. He brought a new kind of power to bear upon our lives, and we need to climb out of the clothes of one kind of power and put on the clothes of an altogether different, yet all-powerful kind of power. Because the kind of power that does harm is actually weakness masked in power. But the kind of power that's willing to have harm done is a heavenly kind. So Aladdin. Jacqueline's like, how are you going to make that transition? I was like, I'm not. I'm just going to say Aladdin and see what happens. Sam, can I just tell you, you fit my personality so well. I, I mean, I'm like up here crying, celebrating, hugging people, mad at people, loving God. Mad, and like you let me do the whole thing. Like we do it together. We're crazy. We're absolutely crazy. But as my brother and I say, we're, this is normal. What's crazy is people who are acting fake today in church and not acknowledging what's actually happening. We're all over the place. You know why? Because the world is all over the place, and we're priests of a holy nation, and so we're going to be all over the place with the world. Why? Because Jesus is all over the place with me all week long. Man, so Aladdin, if I may, I, was, I wrote down so that the title of these next two weeks is called Phenomenal Power. Phenomenal power. And when I, when I texted Ian, Phenomenal Power is the title, I thought of a clip in Aladdin. You're with me. I thought of a clip in Aladdin. I used to watch it on VHS. We'd have to do the tracking to get it just right. We whittled this clip down to 10 seconds so YouTube doesn't snatch the live stream off of us. So you're going to have to watch it quick. Here's the clip. You're a prisoner? All part and parcel of the whole genie gig. Phenomenal cosmic power! Phenomenal cosmic powers. Itty bitty living space. Play it one more time. Play it one more time just for fun. Just for fun. You're a prisoner? It's all part and parcel of the whole genie gig. Phenomenal cosmic powers! There's a way in which what we think of when we think of phenomenal cosmic power, we think of being able to bend people's will to our liking. We think that power is getting other people to be more like us. And if they're not more like us, we either eliminate them or we leave ourselves. So much of what we've seen in the world in the last few weeks is what phenomenal cosmic power of an earthly kind looks like. If I can't get my way, I will make my way violently. Now, for so many of us, as one mother said in a beautiful podcast, she said, 
everybody listening to me right now will more than likely never have a child who ends up doing the kind of harm that was done in Texas. But every one of you will likely have a child who makes a racist joke and doesn't realize it was wrong when they made it. Words only a mother could articulate. We have this idea of power that whether it's through humor or position or finances or actual might, we can win because other people have to lose for us to win. And you know where that gets us? Itty bitty living space. We shrink the world to the size of our preferences and force other people in or completely eliminate them. Now, many of us, hopefully none of us, would do it the way it's been done in the news recently, but we do it by closing the door to relationships. We do it by being indifferent. We do it by saying, Tim, I know me and you have issues, but let's just not deal with them. Let's just agree to disagree, and we move on. But no one ever agrees to disagree. We don't. We just agree to take the path of least resistance. But we don't agree to disagree. Not one part. Jesus didn't agree to disagree. He just disagreed in a heavenly way, not in an earthly way. It has to be worked through. Saying, let's agree to disagree and just move on is eliminating what might be most important between us. Next week is Pentecost Sunday. And next week, we read the texts of what Jesus does with his power. And what he does with his power exemplifies the kind of power that he has. What does he do with his power on Pentecost Sunday? What shows up from heaven? The holy, which is the power of God. So what does that mean? He says, I'm going to go, and then I'm going to give you power. So that means that the kind of power he has is not the kind that can ever be earned or qualified or stolen. It can only ever be gift. Think of people in your life that misuse power. They misuse it because they want more of it, and the way they get more of it is to have you more under it. I know what I was looking around for. An amen. Somewhere around here? Just couldn't find one. Maybe there's one from a few weeks ago. People who have to coerce and take authority have none. That's why they're obsessed with getting more of it. And that's why they harm people to have it. Jesus' power is immediately given back. It's power that's shared. It's power that's offered. It's the kind of power that if you hold on to it too long, it becomes your weakness. When you, if you got too much manna, it bred worms. And if you hold on to this kind of power, you'll lose your grip on it, fall under the weight of a toxicity, and have none. Jesus' power is the kind of power that needs to constantly be given because it's constantly being offered. That's how it works with him. I want to show you a, a very popular Christian icon of the Trinity, and I want to show you this for one specific reason. 
this painting is designed to make you have to keep looking in a circle. The lines are such that you just keep looking from one side to the other and back again. And in the original, in the original copy of this right here, they got them tall a little bit, no? I'm also kind of fat, so hopefully my shirt doesn't go. I'm so jealous of skinny people sometimes. Like, you could do this and not have to worry. Like, good for you. Such ADD. This, in the original, in the original copy, is a mirror. Because the, the one who painted it wants you to know that you're also at the table with the Trinity. But it's painted in such a way and this is all I want to talk about, that the lines make you have to keep looking around it. Now, I want to show you a painting by Emma Carmine that she did on Easter Sunday. This, she told me, I, I actually texted Paul, her father, and I said, can you ask her to explain what she wrote? And she said, this is for Ascension Sunday, which is today. And what I love about this painting is, the mountains are earth, the sky is heaven, and the way she drew Jesus, if you notice, Jesus perfectly meshes with the sky, and that one line in the center of his body perfectly meshes with the mountains, because Jesus' power fills the top, the middle, and the bottom. It's shared with everything. He's as much over heaven as he is under it. He's as much above earth as he is under it. As a matter of fact, on Good Friday, he hangs in between the two because he's bringing them together, not tearing them apart. He hangs between two polarized criminals. He sits in between the Republicans and the Democrats and pulls them together, and that place is called the church for crying out loud. So what are we left with? Have you ever asked that before, especially after a week like this? What are we left with? What did you give me, Jesus, that can help? What am I left with? Luke tells two stories of Jesus vanishing. The second story is the one we just read where he vanishes to heaven. The first story that Luke tells is when the disciples are on the road to Nice on the road to Emmaus, and he puts bread on the table, and then the minute he puts bread on the table, he, I'm not tricking you, he disappears. We do the meet and greet, and no one's quiet. I ask you one question, no one wants to answer. The first time Jesus vanishes, he vanishes in Luke's gospel so that we know that Christ at the table is now Christ on the table in the form of the broken bread. So Jesus vanishes on the road to Emmaus because he knows he's going to vanish for a good long while, longer than we thought. But he's saying, when I vanish, I'm leaving you on the table a kind of my presence that speaks volumes about who I am as a person. It's broken, it's humble, the rich and the poor alike can have it, and it's a gift. It's just given. I'm not even concerned with who's coming to the table. It's offered for you. That speaks volumes about the kind of power that Jesus has. 
It's the kind of power that empowers people who would normally not be invited to such a supper, who would normally not be allowed at such a table, who would normally not even expect to get an invitation to a kind of meal like that. And when they realize it's Jesus, normally we would say, he cannot see me like this. Has anybody ever had a pop-in and you weren't ready for the pop-in? You had your cleaning clothes on or something worse? If Jesus showed up right now, we'd all be like that. But the problem is, if he showed up, he would look as broken as the wafers in that dish. And we would all say, I can get closer to him. I don't feel so bad anymore about this. Because his power empowers. It gives what we need to get to where he is. That's what his power does. Please ask yourself this week, does my life execute that kind of power, the power that makes other people more capable of being in my life? more capable of being at my table? Do I even have people at my table? Do I want people at my table? Be honest. If the answer's no, say no. And say, Lord, fill that no with some healing. Don't say yes, he knows. He knows. He left the Eucharist on the table. Look at this picture by Amaziah. Just killing it every single day. He took bread and broke it. He took wine and shared it. Come on, man. Preach. I'll give you an amen. The bread was life that was shed from his body to save us from sin. The wine was also life that was shed out of his body to save us from sin. And then he said something that got me excited. The world has been saved because Jesus saved our sins. Oh, no, 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 no. Hold on. He didn't write he saved you from them. He wrote he saved them. Imagine, and let's just play the what if game. What if God doesn't just want to save me from the wrong things I did? What if one day he's going to go back and save the wrong things I did? What if he's going to go back and undo every mistake that I ever made and make it the way it always should have been had I made the right one? What if all of the hurt of the world is just going to unravel like a sandcastle before our eyes, and what will be replacing it is the garden that was always supposed to be? What if he doesn't just save us? What if he also saves our sins? What if every mass shooting turns out to be another feeding of the 5,000? That is what we're hoping for. You better pray for that boy. Yeah, I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> Let me tell you, you've already not messed it up. You've already not messed it up. You're doing a phenomenal job. You're doing a phenomenal job. All right, what else did Jesus do? He vanished again, but this time, before he leaves, so the first time he vanishes, he leaves us with the Eucharist, the communion, the bread. The second time he leaves, before he leaves, he opens our minds to understand the scriptures. 
So something else he's going to leave us with is the Bible. But he does something completely wrong. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, and then Jesus says something that's wrong. He says, it is written, the Son of Man should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all the world. Now, keep in mind, the minute Jesus said that, at the moment Jesus said it is written, they did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or anything else. All they had was Genesis through Malachi. That's all they had. So if you look at what Jesus was referencing when he said it is written, what he says after that is not written anywhere. You have to put hundreds of verses together to get what Jesus said. But he didn't say when you put it all together, it means he said it is written that the Son of Man should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, starting with Jerusalem. It doesn't say that anywhere. I always love this moment right here. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Because once Jesus opens your mind with his life, then every verse of every scripture in your entire Bible says, he suffered many things, died, and on the third day he rose again. That's what the entire Bible means from Genesis to the annoying cardboard pages in the back. That was funny. Because mostly people say maps, but I went a step further. From cover to cover, from annoying cellophane wrapping, that's what it means. Every th single doctrine you could ever debate, if it doesn't end up meaning Jesus died and rose and now forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed is not a right doctrine. Every single verse, every story, everything you read in any part of the Bible has to end with, here's what it means. He died, he rose, he's coming back and we can be forgiven. That's why Paul says over and over again, I've determined to preach nothing among you except Christ and him crucified because that's what it means that's all it means that's what the bible says want to know how i know that the bible told me so that's what it means you so, somebody at the door looking at me right now said something incredible to me two sundays ago they said it's i love the way you interpreted the judas story and i said oh thank god that's good to know. And he said, you know, it's funny. I just never thought to interpret the scriptures through the lens of forgiveness. I was only taught to interpret it through the lens of judgment. And I'm like, can I give you this thing? And then you say that to everybody every single Sunday for the rest of eternity. Jesus' life says, now go back and start again and read it all under a new interpretive paradigm called I forgive you and not by hurting you, by healing you. Now read all the other stories and figure out how to interpret it under that lens because that's what Jesus says is written. So Levi drew a picture. 
Now, normally, we wouldn't be excited, and we would, well, in the story, Moses wasn't excited when he brought the tablets down the mountain. Moses walked down the mountain and was like, you all just messed up the first one. And he threw them and broke them. Want to know why he broke them? Because he knew if they were broken, they might not be held against the people. Oh, come on. So maybe the first depiction of Jesus' body broken for us was when Moses shattered the commandments so God wouldn't look at the commandments and then look at the people and put two and two together. Just saying. Or I'm wrong. I don't care. But in this picture, he's happy. Why is he happy? Because now he knows in this picture for the first time that those two tablets and what's written on them doesn't mean the people obey or else. It means he was killed, he rose, and he's going to forgive. Now I'm finally excited about them again. Levy. Wonderful. So he leaves us with the meal, but then tells us that the meal is a meal of humility. So don't use your social networks, your food, your economic situation to exert leverage over people. Use it in a way that makes it easier for people to enter your life. And then he takes the Bible and he says, when you use this, don't use it in a way that draws lines in the sand. Use it in a way that proclaims that the person you're looking at next is forgiven. Well, that's not as much fun. You want to know what else he left us with when he disappeared? This is just me taking obviousness out of the text. He left us with us. We were left when he left. Looking around. Did anybody else just, like, no one probably wanted to admit that Jesus disappeared because they thought they were the only ones who saw it? Like, something weird was happening to them? Like, did you, Aldo, did you see Jesus disappear? He did, right? He did! I know! Like, you know when you have that realization where you're not sure if you're the only one? You know? Did you ever say this to your kid? I have a friend. You did? You did? I know I say it all the time! Like, and then he's gone. And who's left? Us. All Desiree's kids doing all, there you go. Yes. And you know what I love about it? She managed to draw a picture of two hands where the differences aren't canceling each other out, it's just making it look like more hands. Maybe you should do the parenting seminar. Maybe I should start dancing. Nope. Nope. Don't you even think about it. It wasn't me. No. You know why you're clapping? You know why you're clapping? Because you haven't seen it. If you saw it, you'd be like, nah, pastor's wise, pastor's wise. Let him, let, him walk, let him walk in the spirit. Let him walk in the spirit. I know my limits. The world is healthier when we all stay in our limits. I can speak. I can't dance. I can emote, but I can't dance. 
I can say things, but I cannot sing things. I'm so nervous that, like, the music is going to shut off one day when I'm hitting my falsetto. <laughs> nah. Nope. He poured himself out on, you ready? He poured himself out on those who were there for those who weren't. Not to show up those who weren't, but to show those who weren't. He gave us bread so that it can be gift. He gave us Bible so that we can forgive. And he allowed some of us, here right now, he allows some of us to have enough faith to keep getting back here, not to show up people who can't, but to show people who can't what bread and Bible look like in action. That's power in the kingdom of heaven. Turn on anything that's showing you what's going on politically, and that version of power is nowhere to be found. It's nowhere to be found. We have to be here for everyone who's not. That is the most simple Christian thing I could say to you. We have to be here for people who are not. To show them our life as food. To show them our understanding as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Even in Exodus 20, when we're about to get the Ten Commandments for the very first time, before he gives the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, before he gives the first commandment, he says, I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. Then he gave the first commandment. You've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. He gave the first commandment after he announced the gospel. The gospel at that moment was, I saved you from Egypt. Now that you're saved, I want you to start to learn to obey. Now that you're saved, I want you to start to learn to obey. Not, if you learn to obey, you can be saved. Now that you're saved, now I want you to learn to obey. We got that one backwards for a long time. And many churches are still pumping out that backwardsness. I delivered you because you're you and that's enough for me. Now that you've been delivered, let me teach you how to live in freedom because it turns out it's not so easy. That's the kind of power we need. The power where people can bring all the wrongness to be before you. And your love turns wrongness into rightness. Feed them Christianity. Christianity is meant to be food, prepared, smelling good, looking good on the plate. That's why I love when I go to the pizza place. My, one of my favorite parts is when I first see it there, looking all shiny. Got your chicken parm slice right there. You get a pepperoni slice just for like, just to create the baseline. 
and then you get some kind of special buffalo chicken slice, chicken bacon ranch slice, stuff that's really good for your heart, right? Like that keeps it. And, and when you go to some places and they put the food out, you're like, it might be good, but I'm not 100% sure I want to put my fork in there. But sometimes you look at food and you're like, it looks like it tastes good. Christianity, we, it should be that way. And then when they put their fork in it, they should say, oh, my God, it tastes better than it even looked. That's power. That's what we need to be doing. The final thing I want to say is this. He says to them, stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. Not yet. <laughs> that was a secret. No, I'm just kidding. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. And then he's like, all right, come on out to Bethany with me. That's what it says in the text. And they're like, ooh, this is confusing. He said, stay here. Right, Helen? He said, stay here. And now he's saying, go to Bethany with him. Is this a trick? Is this like one of those questions that pastors ask and you can never answer the question right? What's the most important thing to God? Steve, what's the most important thing to God ever? What is it? Say something. You said you? That is the answer. That's the best answer I ever heard. I remember once Bishop Phil said that. And I said, love. And he's like, wrong, the kingdom. And I'm like, God, I thought I had it. I should have said me. I wouldn't be here right now if I said me, though. So he says to them, stay in Jerusalem. And then he leads them out to Bethany. And they go to Bethany. He disappears. And they go back to Jerusalem. Why that detail? What's Bethany? Bethany is the place where Jesus was anointed for his burial, where the alabaster box was broken. So he ultimately wants them in Jerusalem. But he knows Jerusalem is very corrupt, both politically and religiously. Hence, hit the marks on his body. Fair? He wants them back in Jerusalem. But first he takes them to Bethany and says, remember that smell? That aroma that is my death, burial, and resurrection. Do you remember the aroma that filled the room? I want you going back with that scent in your nostrils. Because when you get back there, it's corrupt. When you get back there, it's violent. When you get back there, it's not going to feel like me back there. But that's where I'm pouring out my spirit. And if you don't have this scent of humility, you would think that I'm going to pour out my spirit someplace else because I would never pour it out there. So everyone, the places that you find the most vile and horrible and nasty and not becoming of Christianity, that's where his spirit is poured. And he's got to bring you out so that you can remember the perfume scent of his death and resurrection so that that can be on you long enough for you to be able to anchor yourself in the worst of places so that the spirit can hover over the darkness once again. Let's stand to our feet this morning. He says, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. Now, Ian, we can put up the verse from the message. He says, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. And Eugene Peterson in the message says this, Colossians 3. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. 
compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline, be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense, forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you, and regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Uh, Doreen, worship team, you guys can come up for the final song, fellas. You know how much of a blessing it is for me to be standing up here with my brother and my father? I can't even... If you are ever wondering if God still performs miracles, this trifecta you're seeing up here right now, yes, he turns water into wine and then sometimes has to turn it back into water again because we're like, oh, yes, and then he's like, no, it's too many. Before service today, I, uh, I was feeling incredibly overwhelmed just with the combination of what's going on in the world, a few things going on in the church, the demand to have to say something, the pastoral sense that I never want to be a slave to that demand. And I was just feeling overwhelmed. And so one of the things I do when I feel overwhelmed is I close my eyes and I just think about a st the first story in the Bible that comes to my mind. And this morning it was Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Except, and I want everybody to hear this, when I had that vision of that story, it wasn't Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? It was me asking Jesus, do you love me? And I said in the vision, Jesus, do you love me? And he says what Peter said to him, yes, Phil, you know that I love you. And I said, then feed me, because I need you. And it meant so much to me in that moment. I say that so you can begin to have an idea of how powerful this is. This is Jesus. This is us saying to Jesus, do you love us? And Jesus says yes. And we say, then feed me, because if you don't feed me, I can't feed them. And he says, come. But I also offer you that story, because when you feel overwhelmed, the next thing you do is either going to continue the cycle of destructive thinking or it's going to start a new cycle of redemptive thinking. And so stop. There is almost never a situation where you need to respond in a second. And there's never a two second period of time that God can't give you everything you need to know. Stop, pause, think of the first verse, the first story that pops into your mind Put yourself in it, and he will give you what you need to say next. I promise you. I promise you. The words that were collectively spoken today, the melodies that were played, all of this is not the product of study. It's the product of prayer today. There are some Sundays that can be the product of study. There are others that just have to be the product of, yo, feed me. I can't, I can't make a meal for this. And so that's not just for clergy or pastors. That is for me to have happened to me to remind you that it can happen multiple times a day, every day for the rest of your entire life. 
Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us to your table. Thank you that on the night when you were betrayed, you took this bread and the Holy Spirit so filled your heart. As Satan was filling your disciples, the Spirit was filling your heart. And you were able to give thanks. And so I pray that you would give us a continuous spirit of thanksgiving in our life. And you took the bread and you broke it. And you said, this is my body which is offered to you. As often as you come to this table, come in remembrance of me. And then after supper, you took the cup of wine. And you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you come, come in remembrance of me. And we thank you, Jesus, that you invite us back to this table. We thank you that you will feed us every time we need to be fed on, on words that are even more important than food. I thank you that you have a table prepared in the presence of your enemies, and every time they sit down, they leave as friends. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and that you would descend on us. Give us the grace to examine ourselves as we come. You don't say that there has to be everything right in us to come. You just say examine yourself. It's not that we need to be right, Salem. It's that we just need to be aware of where we may not be so that we know what Jesus is laying his hand on. I'm going to say that one more time. He wants us to examine ourselves before we come to the table, not because everything needs to be right, but because we need to know that there may be some things that are wrong so that we know what he's laying his hand on. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. As the worship team plays, I feel like I just, I want to I wanna hand it out this Sunday. I know we've been doing it a little differently. I'm going to be standing here in the middle. Ushers will release you from the back to the front. Everybody can come down this way. You can come down this way and leave through the center doors. Let's worship and let's be fed by Jesus this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.